Whoa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. This is Connor Hallway of the Golden Hours Podcast, and this is a GDP Minute. couple quick things. One, shout out to the research squad. Great work on this episode. Number two, I just had my guy Dave Wedge on the podcast. Yes, sir. It's Dave, not David. And Dave is a journalist and now just a pretty popping author. He just told me he got a James Patterson deal. That's sweet. Um, and he just came on the podcast and he just dropped a book called Hunting Whitey. And it's all about the manhunt for Whitey Bulger. You know, when he went to California, nobody knew where he was. That's what the whole book's about. I am not a huge reader. Never have been, never will be. I got that ADHD bug, baby boy. And uh, I love this book because, we, you know, we had Red Shea up on the last podcast. And it's just been cool kind of tapping into that old Boston world, that old Southie world. And it's some of the stuff in the book you're going to be like, dude, I cannot believe this is real life. This is insane. I can't believe this was happening. Anyway. I had a blast with Dave. He talked about the book, how he gathered information, how he got some of these crazy interviews with Billy Bulger and some other figures in the book. And um, we had a good time, man, even though, you know, once in a while, you got to run a grim podcast like this. Talked about a lot of grim stuff. I'm just going to start calling Dave Young Stephen King, the Grim Reaper. They Actually, that's what they called him at the Herald. They used to call him the Grim Reaper. But, yeah, it's my guy, Young Stephen King. Anyway, man, I hope everybody enjoys the episode. It was a really, really good time, and get, definitely go cop the book. Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. What's up, guys? We've, we've glowed up a little bit since our last episode, man. A little more I like official. the Golden Deer. That's sweet. Yeah, so actually, unfortunately... I actually, until about 30 seconds ago, thought this neon sign was a deer, but Brendan reminded me that that is most definitely a moose. And no, I it's just a looks, moose. Yeah. I can see it from here. It's a moose. Yeah, it looked pretty nice stupid. Nice try, though. Yeah, I'm trying, man. I mean, it's it's better than this whole, like, uh, fugitive hideout you got back here. That, that looks like Whitey's cell. Where are you living, man? <laughs> I'm uh, down in my uh, my basement bunker. So what what has quarantine been like for you? Well, you know, I, I mean, fortunately, I'm a writer, so I can get a lot of writing done, you know, and I, I you know, I do some, um, some other stuff, as you know, too, some consulting and some political work. And, uh, you know, that that was slow for a while. But now with everything going on, I've been pretty busy with that. So I've been getting out more now. But the first couple of months, I barely left the house except to get food, you know, but I got a lot of writing done. Did did the quarantine totally mess up the press run that you had planned? Were you going to do like a bunch of in-person stuff? Yeah. So we, we, uh, when we went, you know, back in the fall, when we were talking about launching this book, you know, we obviously didn't know this was coming. And then once we realized in, um, you know, January, February, that a lockdown was coming, we had a talk with our publisher about possibly delaying the release. Cause we, you know, it's such an uncertain thing. No, no one had ever released anything during something like this. So, we, we just went back and forth and ultimately, you know, the, our publisher, William Morrow at uh, HarperCollins was like, you know what, let, let, we're going to keep it on schedule. We're just going to pivot a little bit and do it differently. So, you know, it's disappointing because Casey and I like to have like a big launch event. You know, the last one we had for the uh, Tom Brady book in 2018, we had, you know, five, 600 people, a bunch of media. It was amazing, you know, and then, you know, we did one for the Pete Frady's book back in 17. 
at Fenway, you know, and like Big Poppy was there and Pete Frady's obviously the mayor came. And so we like to do those kind of big things. So it was a bummer that we couldn't have that. We like to celebrate these things with our friends and family and, um, you know, the people involved, but, you know, just different times, man. So everybody's doing what they got to do. So how'd you celebrate this one? So we had a, we did a big uh, launch on uh, like a zoom launch on NBC 10 and boring. Boring. <laughs> well, that's how we started the launch. And now, I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of these things. I'm, you know, but we're, we're going to do something when, you know, when things lift, we're going to do some sort of event. And we do have another book coming out in December. So we, hopefully things will be good then. We'll have a big event then. Well, how did HarperCollins adjust their promotional strategy? Did they just pour like a, their marketing budget more into like social and e-commerce? Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, you know, We've done a ton of press, you know, we've been doing a lot of podcasts like yours and, you know, a lot of, you know, traditional media, you know, we did some national stuff, um, actually did a Jenny McCarthy show, which was pretty cool. And with Donnie Wahlberg, we did that. That's on Sirius. We did that last week. So a lot of that stuff has been fun and it's totally different, but you know, people, you know, this quarantine has impacted every business as you know, including yours, you know, it's changed the way everybody does things. And, um, you know, for us, it's, it's, you know, bookstores are closed and, and we do, there still are a lot of people, believe it or not, that like to go to bookstores and shop for books and buy them, you know, um, we it, sell a good it amount It depends the demographic. I think older people like to hit the bookstore still, but kids my age would rather just hit, hit up the Kindle or hit up Amazon. Yeah, no, absolutely. But for us, you know, especially a book about Whitey Bulger, there is an older demographic that's also interested in that book besides, you know, just regular young true crime fans. And a lot of those people still go to your Barnes and Nobles and all that. And we do in-store signings and, and those are always pretty fun. And, you know, we meet a lot of people. So it's kind of a bummer we don't get to do that. And we do a lot of stuff at like libraries too, like public libraries and people come and do Q and A's and stuff. And those are kind of out for now too. Well, or they're on Zoom. Hey, before we move on, can you just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do for anyone tuning in? I'm Dave Wedge and uh, I am an author and a journalist and um I, uh, I live in Boston, well, just outside of Boston, I live in Milton now, and grew up in Brockton, and uh, I was a reporter at the Boston Herald for 14 years, and I've, uh, I left in 2013 and done a lot of different writing for a lot of different outlets since then. I, I wrote for Vice for a little while, I did some stuff in Newsweek and Esquire, and this is uh, my fourth book now. Can I tell you one thing I learned from our first episode, which stuck with me, was... Yeah. And that doesn't happen a lot. Usually after the episode, I'm like, oh my God, I just blacked out. What just happened? <laughs> but, but one thing I learned from you is like that as a journalist, like you got to be a hustler if you want to be a good journalist. Because you were telling me how like you used to go to that whatever terrible club in the seaport was. You would show up there to like cover bands and then the whole Boston yeah. bombing. Like you were, you didn't sleep for like 72 hours. So I always yeah. thought that was fire. I got respect for you, dude. No, I, I appreciate that, man. I mean, I work hard and, you know, I respect your hustle and I see what you're doing and I respect the hell out of it, you know, and um, I was the same way when I was younger and your age, I used to, you know, we didn't have podcasts and the internet, but I was out there hustling, you know, on the streets and meeting people and, you know, I hate sounding like an old guy, but like, you know, back then being a reporter, it was very different than now. Like, you know, we had to get out and go meet people and dig through actual physical records at different government buildings and courthouses and police stations. And, 
it was just a different game altogether. And but I learned how to research that way, and that that's what made me into who I am, you know. And also, I'd, something I've been learning too with with the whole research squad that that journalists just desperately want to get out like a good story. That's something that's like never really enticed me, but I learned that from you too. Like you just want to tell the truth for people who want access to the right information. Yeah. It's, you know, that's what it's all about. I mean, that's why I did this, you know, and why I became a, a journalist in the first place was to inform people of the truth, whether it's about a murder or, you know, Tom Brady's court case or, you know, Pete Frady's disease or, you know, I've, 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 did, I've done a lot of stuff around the social justice issues over the years. Um, you know, I'm a music fan at heart, so I've done a ton of music journalism over the years. And I grew up covering, you know, rap and, and metal in the 80s and in the, in the 90s and the 2000, early 2000s. So, you know, name of an act from that time. And I probably interviewed him or did something on him, you know, and it was. I know, it was, man. Every time. Every time we talk, you, you act like I should know every single act from, like, the 1990s. I'm like, dude. I forget how young you are, bro. <laughs> I forget like, how young you are. Like, you haven't listened to Ed OG's second and third album? What's your <laughs> deal, dude? Well, it's funny. Like, you know, as you, and you'll see as you get older. Like, even now at your age, like, you think of things that you listened to when you were, like, 12. And kids that are now 12 don't know that. You know what I mean? So, it's – I'm 50, this year I'm turning 50. So like a lot, you know, I've listened to a lot of music, man, and a lot of good music. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny when you just remember the people your age have no idea what I'm talking about. It's hilarious. <laughs> you, uh, you're good at making me feel old, bro. I think you got a young spirit. <laughs> yeah, I try, you know. Hey, so I also, I, I want to, for most of the episode, I want to talk about the book because the book was awesome. But uh, I also, I read the, uh, I read your piece in the Globe too, which is great. Which one? The Brockton. The Brockton. Oh Brockton. yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, yeah, that. Um, so you know, I, I'm doing a little work with the mayor. The, the Brockton's got a new mayor. He's a good friend of mine. His name's Bob Sullivan, and we went to Brockton High together. And um, you know, he didn't. He just took office in January, and he got hit with COVID. You know, with with that whole crisis, and Brockton's been hit really hard by the pandemic. Um, well, like third. And, What's that? Okay, there you go. You were lagging a little bit. Go ahead. Okay, sorry. Yeah, no, the, uh, Brockton got hit pretty hard with the pandemic. They're like third in the state with cases, and, you know, they've had uh, almost 300 deaths. So he got slammed with that. And then, you know, the George Floyd protests and the Black Lives Matter stuff started, and um, they had a big protest in Brockton last week. I'm sure you saw it, and there was some violence, you know, some, some you know, window smashing and stuff. And, um, you know, Bob, I think, is setting the right tone. He's reaching out to the communities of color and the young people. He wants to include them in this conversation to fix what's wrong. Like, that's the thing. Right now, dude, everyone's mad and everyone, everyone should be mad. But now it's time to channel that anger into real change. And that has to happen in the city halls, the state house, Washington, and the voting booth. That's where the change is going to happen. That's something I've been wondering a lot, too, is like, how do obviously everything's so tense. How do you channel it into productive action? You know what I'm saying? That's just I, like, you know, people look, look, I mean, I met a young kid yesterday down in Brockton at the mayor's office. He sat with the mayor's name is Ross Tapina. And this kid blew me away. He, I don't know where he went to school or whatever, but he was a really smart kid. And he came in 
And the mayor said, okay, let's hear your thoughts. What do you think needs to be done? And he pulled out his notebook and he ticked off all these specific things that needed to be done. Like we need to review the use of force policies. We need to review the uh, disciplinary procedures in the police department. You know, we need to review how minority hiring occurs, you know? And, and so what has to happen now is Bob is literally gonna work with that guy and some other people, some other smart policy folks, and they're gonna go through all of Brockton's um, you know, rules and regulations, some of which probably haven't been looked at in 50 years. And it's time to look at those now and, and update them and make it so that everything is more equitable. Like smashing a Dunkin' Donuts window is just an expression of anger, you know, and I, and I get it, but that already happened and it's over. So like now let's take that next step and let's be that change, you know, let's do it together. Cause you know, white people can't understand what black people have been through, especially in the inner city. We live a different experience than them. So we got to listen to our black friends and brothers and sisters and family. And we got to listen to them and take what they're saying and make it happen so that, we can all be fair to each other. It's, you know, it's bullshit what's going on, you know? Yeah, so one question I specifically have for you on it is there's so much information and in turn misinformation right now. It's like media yeah. is just like an onslaught from all angles. What do you think the best way to gather your information would be right now in the most honest way? It's like, so, where would you go? Who would you talk to? I, I mean, unfortunately now, you know, I'm, look, I'm a, I'm a journalism pro. I've been doing this for 30 years. So I know where the good information is and where the bullshit is. You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of people on the internet that are real good at making bullshit look like truth. And you just have to be a smart news consumer and you have to educate yourself. My advice is you start with the, the mainstream institutions, you know, not MSNBC, not Fox News, but places like you know, the LA Times, you know, the New York Times, although they've been a little sketchy lately. Um, but I think, you know, you get a lot of truth from local news, your local newspaper, you know, you'll at least find out what happened. The thing that's going on with the local newspapers is like, they are so short staffed, they don't have enough time or resources to write a bunch of bullshit. They're just trying to get out the facts as quick as they can. And they make mistakes, but you'll usually get the facts. So you just got to read everything and check it. And, you know, I, I would stay away from the real extreme, you know, on both sides. Cause you know, you, you're just not going to get the tr listen, everything in life. The truth is somewhere in the middle. That's what I believe. Well, the problem is those big institutions have the largest market share. Yeah. And so it's like, if you're looking for news, it's like MSNBC, CNN, Fox news are in your face the most, they got the most money, you know? Yeah, but they're not reliable and they're not, you know, it's suddenly. But, but I see, I know that, but people don't, not everybody knows that. Right. That, that's, but here's the other thing, like within CNN and within Fox and within MSNBC, there is really good journalism being done. You just got to look for it. You can't just look at the screen and headline and go, oh my God, that's terrible. The world's falling apart. You got to dig and research these reporters, see who they are and, and find out if they're credible or not. And, you know, I can promise you this, you read something that I wrote, it's the truth, you know, and I can name you 50 other journalists that it's the same thing. You know, the, you want to read some truth? There's a guy named Paul Pringle at the LA Times, one of the best reporters in the, com in the country. Dude is a beast and he just uncovers corruption all the time. That's all he does. He's great. You know, uh, my friend Stephen here at the Boston Globe, it's A-N-N-E-A-R, great journalist, really smart. Chris Perone at the Dig, Dig Boston. You know, Chris, Chris, 
you know, he, he can get uh, he can get a little crazy sometimes with his with his views, but he has a good team of young, hungry reporters that dig for truth, and he does a good job at it. Paul Pringle sounds like the alias for a Marvel character. Yeah, it does. <laughs> and you should read this guy's stuff. He did you see the story about the uh, the USC professor that was uh, like selling drugs and he, and all sorts of crazy stuff? No, you like love like reading stuff like that. I hate reading stuff like that. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm a all these terrible stories. Like, how do you sleep? Uh, you know at night? Well, the story really is how the college protected him and how the newspaper tried to kill the story because they were in cahoots with the college. And that's the story. So what I'm all about doing is breaking down institutions and holding people accountable. That's what it's about. And I know. How, what, how long have you been F authority for? Like, how long has that been going since on? Since I was born. You just <laughs> never liked it? Did you get in trouble when you were young? I mean, I, I've been threatened by everybody, you name it. I've been threatened, you know, but I mean, look, I, 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 uh, I'm not anti-authority. I'm anti-corruption, you know, so I, I, I respect authority. I love, yeah, my, my brother-in-law is a cop. Some of my, most of my best friends are cops in Brockton and they're all great people. Um, but I don't like institutional, um, negligence and laziness, which is what a lot of it is at the government level. It's, it's, it's not so much corruption a lot of the times. A lot of times it's just laziness. And I like holding people accountable. Well, I mean, that's a great segue for the book. And I mean, we could talk about what's going on right now all day, but I really love the book. So I just want to make sure we get into no, it. I, no, I'm glad. No, I'm, I'm, I'm on a tangent, but I'd love to talk about the book, man. Of course. Well, dude, the book was awesome. I just finished the epilogue this morning. Cool. And I'm glad I got you to read. Well, it was an audio book, so it was kind of like the, the cheapskate version. Oh, man. But I honestly have been thinking recently that I might have threads of dyslexia, so I kind of have an excuse. Well, hey, as long as you're taking in good information. Well, so this is my question, my just my knee-jerk question. As you developed the research for the book, and we'll, we'll start from top to finish, but as you developed the research for the book, did you like feel a weird attachment to Whitey because you just you learned everything about him? Hmm. Um, I mean, I heard, I, sorry to interrupt you. I mean, I heard your voice the whole time because by the end you're like the, the audiobook I was like, he was a serial killer and a pedophile. <laughs> and, and now he's six feet under. <laughs> uh, no, nah, I mean, you know, reading those letters. So, you know, the book, we got access to over 70 letters that Whitey himself wrote to people. And um, reading those letters and holding them in our hands was a little weird, you know, made you feel like a little connection to the guy. And, you know, I was there in uh, 2000 when they dug up those six bodies over at Tenian Beach and Florian Hall in Dorchester. Um, you know, I was standing out there in, in the, right near the cops and they would sifting through the, through the dirt, picking out bones, you know. So I've been covering that case for 20 years on and off. And so I definitely feel you know, a, a deep interest in it, but you know, I didn't feel any sort of connection to Whitey. Fuck that guy. Yeah. There were threads of that, but there was, there was moments in the book where like there were flashes of his humanity, you know, it was just like really interesting. There were yeah. moments where you learn that they mercilessly killed Stephen Fleming's stepdaughter. And then at the same time, he was like so nice to the kid in Grand, in Grand Isle 
Louisiana. Yeah. Like it was just really weird. Yeah, it's it's you know it's not uncommon for serial killers to be like that. You know, and, or you know, mass killers that they have some sort of vulnerable vulnerable side. And with Whitey, it was pets, it was animals. He loved dogs and cats. And um, you know that that great story down in Grand Isle. You know, the family had put down a little and what he couldn't stand the sight of it he walked away crying you know his guy that has no problem ripping up teeth with some young girl or strangling a girl or you know shooting some innocent dude um in the face and burying him but he can't st- stomach the sight of a, of a dog being euthanized so he's he's definitely a you know he the other thing i think that's a big part of the story is that you know he was subjected to um uh hundreds of lsd experiments when he was in jail in alcatraz as part of a government program and it seems like science fiction, but that really happened. You know, it was, a, it was a famous CIA program. They were trying to find a truth serum. And they were using LSD on prisoners to figure out what it would do. And Whitey took part in those to get time off for good behavior. And, you know, that doesn't excuse his behavior, but it was part of who he was. It really, you know, that would mess up anybody. Yeah, see, I'm going to actually have, I'm going to kick it to Brendan real quick, because that was one of the points you want to talk about was the MK Ultra experience. But it the mk ultra it was also exhibited on the guy who wrote was a catcher in the rye or one flew over the cuckoo's nest and also charles manson correct same program you know what you'd you'd know better than me on that to be honest with you i'm not sure sounds right (laughs) b you want to just kind of chime in here yeah well there is an interesting history of it with yeah ken kesey author of one flew over the cuckoo's nest and there's also a very recent book on Charles Manson. Um, and in the past, it had been conspiracy theory, but there's some evidence that Manson was actually using the same MK Ultra mind experiments to influence the Manson family and actually commit murders, which I find interesting because that's kind of a three way to Whitey. And, um, you know, like, like you said, he was kind of bad. He was a, he was a really violent kid, but like there could have been some influence from MK Ultra. I, I was wondering how much you think the influence is. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you were to, if you were able to study Whitey Bulge's brain after he was murdered, I, I think you would have found some serious damage, like possibly even like CTE sort of stuff. You know, he, he took a lot of beatings over the years from police officers um and in just in fights things like that um and you know he had these lsd experiments um you know people that we interviewed for the book you know his his family his brother told us that that had a profound impact on uh, on him but you know he had made the decision to be a criminal long before any government agency gave him lsd in prison he was already in jail for bank robberies he had already committed armed robberies assaults you know he was already a, a gangster. So I think it just made him worse. It's almost like, you know, it, it made him like super gangster is what I think, you know? See, what's interesting too is before I had read this book, I had always had the the common perception of Whitey as just like the elusive gangster who ran the Irish mob. And like you guys did a real deep job. Like, no, nah, this dude in Fleming were some psychos. Yeah, they, they, and, and, you know, they really were, you know, and they were, um, you know, I think one, one thing that, that we talk about in the book is, you know, we don't go too much into all the old murders, but um, there was a series of murders, and, and I, I can't remember all the names right now, but they were trying to kill one guy, I think it was Polly McGonagall, 
was his name. And they killed his brother by accident. Then they killed like two other dudes that they thought was him. Uh, they, they happened to be criminals too. So everyone was like, oh, they got killed in the mob wars. But they killed three dudes before they got to the dude they really wanted to kill. And so that, that, that's psycho. Like, they're psychos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I shouldn't even laugh. It's just sick. But how about that part where you said, I forget. I think it was the boxer. They buried underneath the Neponset Bridge. And then he bought yeah. property and, like, would go out and look at the grave. Yeah, so, so there was a boxer named Tommy King that um, his crime was he once beat Whitey up in a bar. So Whitey owned a, well, he didn't own it, but he made it his. Was, there was a bar called Triple O's in Southie right by the Broadway T station, which is now, I think it's Warden Hall is the name of the place. And uh, Bulger used to hang out there and Tommy King beat up Whitey one night outside Triple O's. So Bulger and his crew killed the guy. They bury him in the, uh, in, uh, Tenian Beach over underneath the red line tracks over in, on the Quincy Dorchester line and the marshes over there by the Neponset River. And they used to drive by on the highway and, and Whitey would say, tip your hat to Tommy whenever they drive by. So the, 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 other one that, the other one that they did was Paulie McGonagall was buried over there too. And whenever it was high tide and they would drive by, he'd say, drink up, Paulie. You're smiling, which is, which is throwing me off. Huh? <laughs> this stuff kind of like it excites you a little bit. Dude, he's a, he's a sick old bastard, man. <laughs> I mean, it's gangster stuff. It's like, why do you like Goodfellas? Like, what do you like about Goodfellas? Uh, well, I like the Sopranos. Poor Goodfellas. Okay, what do you like about the Sopranos? Well, see, actually, that no, it really. I this morning, um, Whitey's killer. His last name was Freeze. Fries. What's that? What was? Oh, Gius. Freddie Gius. Gius. Yeah. He, his character really reminded me of Tony Soprano because the whole playing Freddy? with the daughter. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, I mean, so to my point, what I love about Goodfellas and I think why most people like it, why it's such a great movie is because Joe Pesci is funny as hell, even when he's being a total psycho, you know, like he stabs Maury in the back of the head with the ice pick and says, oh man, I wish I, I didn't think he'd ever shut the fuck up. Like that's funny shit. It's sick, but it's funny, you know? And, it's, you know, so that, that kind of humor, you know, that gallows humor kind of permeates these type of psychopaths. It's disturbing, but at the same time, you know, I guess it, it makes us not think about the reality of killing as much. It makes us focus more on, all right, this guy's just nuts, rather than being sad about a murder. Yeah, I hear you. When did, so you started reporting in, the, in Boston in the, the early 90s? Um, well, I was, I was, I started the paper in Taunton, uh, in okay. 1993, I think. And then, and then I went to the paper in Attleboro for a couple of years. And I went to the Herald in 99. So when we just had Red Shea on the podcast and it's, yeah. it, was, it was really interesting hearing him, hearing the shout out from him in the book, which is really, really interesting. But when did the way you write about it, it was like Southie was a total circus. When did that stop? I would say around the time, honestly, around the time that Whitey left, you know, not, not, and it wasn't just because Whitey left. I just think that the city was evolving at that point and Southie was turning into what it is now. It's starting to gentrify. And, you know, a lot of those old Southie families from the thirties, forties and fifties were getting older and they were all moving out. You know, a lot of them moved out after the busing crisis in the seventies, they started moving out, but the ones that couldn't afford to move out started moving out in the nineties. 
And, um, you know, it was kind of like a mass exodus of blue collar people out of Southie in the 90s and 2000s. And, and now you look at it now, it's, it's almost unrecognizable. It's like, you know, it looks like a glass city over there now. Okay, so just peeling it back a little bit. So how do you collaborate on a book with Casey? How does that work? Uh, well, we've done four books together now, actually five. Um, uh, and, you know, so we're pretty good at it. We just kind of divide up the work, you know. So for this one, um, Casey took on uh, writing the part, the first half of the book, and I wrote the second half. But we also add to each other's sections, then we edit each other, and then we both give it a read through and, and you know, that sort of thing. So, um, but, you know, we just kind of divide up the work and, and do our research and, you know, sometimes I'll be interviewing someone and, and something will be better for his section than mine. And I'll just pass it along to him and we just put it all together like a puzzle. And so you, when we were on the phone, you're like, Hey, I didn't really want to write this book at first. Like I didn't want to do it. Can you kind of speak to that? Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, I had covered the Whitey Bulger case off and on over the years and you know, I'm not, I'm not like a Whitey expert, you know, I guess I am now, but I wasn't before I knew a lot about it, but, there's a lot of other reporters that knew way more about the case and the whole corruption angle with the FBI than I did because they covered it much more intensely. There's reporters in the city that that's all they did for you know 20 years was only investigate the corruption in the Boston FBI office in Whitey Bulger. I didn't do that. But um, so because of that, I was like, all right, this story has been told. Everybody knows a lot about it and blah, blah, blah. So I never thought about writing a Whitey Bulger book. I wasn't really that interested in it. But then when he got murdered, I was like, all right, now here's a way for us to get into the story with some new stuff because no one knows the whole story about how he got murdered yet. So we can kind of write the final chapter in this twisted saga of, of the, this crazy crime boss. Now, how did you get access to those interviews with, with Billy Bulger and then um, Freeze's daughter? Am I saying his name right? Freeze? Uh, Freddie Gius. 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 So... Uh, with Billy Bulger, you know, I was a political reporter, so he, he, you know, I covered him a little bit over the years in the early 2000s when he was president of the UMass. Ended up and let me in. You know, he knew who I was. He was like, hello, David. And I said, you know, I told him I was there. I said, I'm working on a book about, you know, your brother's murder. I'd like to talk to you. And he said, come on in. Brought me in, sat at the kitchen table. And, I and you were like, let's board. go. Yeah, I recorded, I sat in his kitchen for two hours with him and his wife and, you know, he just kind of spilled his guts. You know, he wouldn't talk a lot about, you know, he, he, he's guarded, he's a, you know, he's a politician, you know, so he was evasive about what he knew about his brother's life on the run and that sort of stuff. But he was, he talked a lot to me about, you know, why he thinks his brother was the way he was. And, and then with Freddie Gius' daughter, Taylor, um, amazing, amazing young lady, she's really smart. Um, she's talented. She actually writes and, um, she, she reached out to us when, when the news came out that we were writing the book, she reached out to us and asked if she could help us. So just built a relationship with her and, and she was very, uh, crucial to helping us with everything in the book. See, what's so interesting. It was a really great point in the book. It, I would be so exhausted if I was the Bulger family while all this is going on, like, it just seems like something's hanging over your head for so long. But then they also like celebrated his life when he passed away, which was yeah. just so interesting. Yeah. I mean, look at the end of the day, I mean, Billy Bulger told me, you know, he said, look, I loved my brother. 
he said, I, you know, I hated the things that he did, but I didn't know that side of him. You know, he, he didn't, he wasn't there when Whitey killed anybody. He, you know, Whitey didn't talk to him about that stuff. He just knew that his brother was into some bad shit and he tried to stay away from that side of his life, but he did love him. And, um, you know, we interviewed his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, the girl that he was on the run with for 16 years. Um, I spent some time with her sister. She has a twin sister named Margaret McCusker and she lives over in Southie as well. And, you know, she said the same thing, like, you know, my sister loved Jim. They call him Jim, you know, Jim Bulger. So my, my sister loved him. He was, I never saw that side of him. He was a good guy. He treated my sister well. So, you know, they did care about the guy. And again, it's not, not unlike the Sopranos. Like, you know, that family loved Tony, but they didn't know what he really did. They didn't know who he was, you know? Is Catherine Gregg out or she's due to be out this year? She's out. She's living down in Hingham. She actually lives with one of Whitey's uh, nephews in Hingham. <clears throat> now, that would be a fire podcast. Well, we tried like hell to get her, you know, and she just, she didn't want to talk. You know, I, don't, I, I think she's, you know, she's like the definition of ride or die. She, she will never tell her story. I, I don't think she'll ever tell her story. Yeah, you guys did a great job with that in the book. It was just like totally blinded by love. I wish I knew what that was like, man. Yeah. Yeah. She was, you know, she just was committed to him and she just rode along with him for that whole 16 years. And at the end, you know, she was really crucial to keeping him healthy. She would go get his medication, make sure he ate, you know, he was an old man at that point. She took care of him. But he it's was a crazy, like crazy story. Oh, it's nuts. And he was pissed about the dog. Like the, oh no, excuse me, not the dog, the cat that she was. Yeah. Yeah. He was, yeah. She would go and feed a cat and he was always mad about that because he thought she was getting too friendly with the neighbors and ultimately she was. And that, that ended up, he was right about that, by the way, because that ended up playing into how he got caught. So there are so many just ups and downs in the story. And so I totally implore anybody who's listening to this or tunes into this to go get it. But can you speak to just a couple of these moments? One, the haunty, that shit was absolutely terrifying. I cannot believe that was real. <laughs> so I, I, you know, I, I have a pic, there's a picture in the book of the Haunty. The Haunty was a house in South Boston that was owned by, uh, there's a gangster named Pat Nee that was a, a you know, a, an associate of Whitey Bulger. And Pat Nee's brother owned this house and they nicknamed it the Haunty because they would kill people and bury them in the basement. And they'd drive by and say, oh, there's the Haunty, you know, just the same thing as they did with the highway. Like, they thought it was funny that they had bodies buried in the basement, you know, and, and uh, they ultimately they ended up burying three people there and then the house got sold and they had to dig up those bodies and move them. And they, they did that. They dug them up, they moved them. They brought them over to um, Florian Hall where, where they were ultimately found after Kevin Weeks flipped. And I mean, just if you think again, the Goodfellas reference, the same thing happened in Goodfellas. They had to dig up Billy Bats and move them because they were, building condos and you know, that's the scene where they're throwing up that's how the movie opens with them digging up the body but those guys really these guys really did that you know what it reminds me of is that scene in breaking bad when jesse and mr white have you seen breaking bad i haven't no that's there's one i haven't seen there's a scene where they kill these two dudes on accident and they put their bodies in acid and bury them in the basement then it just like hangs over their head for like three years of their this body in the right. basement Good God. Well, that's why, that's why they called it the haunty, you know? 
and it's just it's that house actually got sold recently it sold i, I i'm trying to remember I, th I think it sold for like three million dollars something crazy because it's a big piece of land they, whoever bought it they'll rip it down and build a bunch of condos and families will have prized moments not knowing that there's just gruesome murders right beneath their feet i mean it's one of those things where like you know there'll probably be people that will look it up and won't buy it because of that. But then there'll be sick bastards that will want to live there because of it. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Do you, do you think people like Whitey and like you've, you've done tons of research on it over the years, yeah. dealt with people like this. Do you think they're born bad or do you think they turn bad? Um, that's a good question. I mean, if I knew the answer to that, I could, I could, fix the world but I mean I think that I, I do think that there are people that are just I think there's something traumatic in everybody's life that ends up being a murderer or a killer there's something that pushes them that way but I also do think that there are people that are born just with some sort of mental deficiency or something's wrong with them you know we call them off you know whatever but Whitey was you know, I think if Bulger didn't decide to go into crime, he would have been like a CEO and he would have made bank. You know, he was a smart dude. He knew how to run business and, and influence people and manipulate. He was really good at it. And that's, that's how people make a lot of money in this world, unfortunately. You know, you can make money being a good person too, but there's a lot of money made by people that have those characteristics. So I just think he was just a, I, th I think, you know, we tell the story in the book about his father losing his arm in a railroad accident when he was young and Bulger at that point had to start helping to provide for the family. So I think that didn't help his life course. And then, you know, police beatings and then the acid stuff when he was in jail. So I think it all kind of, you know, and then he met all these gangsters and started working for him and saw he could make money. Yeah. But that's, you're humanizing him again. Like, but the, but some of the stuff in this book is like, it seems outerworldly you know it's like no normal human with like normal compassion could commit shit like this and it wasn't just him it was the Fleming shit he's the real nutso to me i think they both were i think they were both really messed up people and you know i love the part in the trial where Fleming's testifying and you know blaming whitey for killing uh debbie hussey and and, and whitey's blaming him you know it's like they both killed her. I think, you know, I think that, I think it's pretty clear that they both, you know, when you, if you and me are together and I kill a dude and you don't do anything to stop it, you can be charged with murder, you know, or if you let it happen or if you invited the dude over so that I could kill him, it's murder. That's what happened here. You know, they both knew that she was going to be murdered that day. It's kind of irrelevant who actually strangled her. So uh, another moment in the book, can you speak to, so is it actually like real life that when he was out in San Diego at the movie theater, watching the departed that people actually <laughs> saw him or that just seems hyper real. It's, it's art imitating life. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we interviewed the actual cop who saw him, you know, and so Bulger on the day the departed came out, um, I think it was like what, 2005 or something. Um, he went to, he was living out in California at that point, And he went to a theater down in San Diego and went to see The Departed. And uh, he's sitting there watching the movie and four rows behind him is a, a San Diego sheriff's deputy who was taking a break from a trial. He was in across the street at the courthouse. And that kid uh, was, was from Massachusetts. He was from the Cape. 
and he, he recognized Baldrick, he saw him. And um, he, so he waited for him outside. He, the guy didn't have his gun though, because he checked it at the courthouse, because he was in a trial. But he waited for Baldrick outside, because he wanted to make sure it was him. And as Baldrick came out, they locked eyes, and he's like, it was him. And he thinks that Baldrick made him as well. And then Baldrick kind of hurried away, got on a trolley, and escaped, gave him a slip. Like the, and the guy called for backup, and they, you know, they, they pursued him, but they couldn't catch him. They couldn't Dude, why him. do you ever ad- admit to anything like that happening? Um, I'm, I have to, I think in one of the letters he makes reference to the departed. Um, he doesn't talk specifically about that San Diego situation, but he definitely in those letters, uh, makes reference to, you know, he talks about Brad, uh, he talks about black mass and Brad, uh, what's his name? Not Brad, Johnny Depp. Um, Johnny Depp. Yep. And he, um, you know, he was very conscious of the, the entertainment angle of his life story. You know, he was, he was into it. He thought he talks about it a lot. That would have been the most hyper real ending to the story of all time if they caught him in the movie theater watching. That would have been crazy. And imagine I'm if glad they, they didn't though, because actually from there, you know, the, the story just got a little wilder even after that, you know? I know, but imagine if they had caught him while the scene of the departed was playing where Jack Nicholson gets killed. Spoiler alert, everybody. Would have been, been pretty great. That would have been wild. Um, so question. When I was doing a a little research on this. There are these PBS interviews with John Conley and Kevin Weeks. You know the ones I'm talking about? Yeah. What, what is the timeline on those? Were those before they all got wrapped up? After? I don't know. Um, I'll have to look. It was definitely before John Conley got charged because John Conley didn't get charged so many years after all this happened. But Kevin Weeks served his time and then got out. He served, I think he served eight years. You know, he's a guy that, again, murder and bastard you know he killed people and, and was there for a lot of murders and um buried bodies and unburied bodies and he only got eight years because he you know he flipped but john connelly for you know for your listeners all know he was a fbi agent in, in uh bought the boston office that bulger you know basically put him on his payroll and he was paying him off to get information and keep him free and uh john connelly ended up um getting charged with racketeering served 10 years for that, and then he got charged with a murder down in Florida. He basically set up a murder, um, told Whitey Bulger about some guy that was going to rat him out, and Bulger and, and, and Moderano went down and killed him. So he got, he's serving 40 years for murder. Yeah, you really don't like that guy at all. He's a horrible human, you know? I mean, <laughs> he's, you know, he's, he's, uh, you know, he's sworn to uphold the law, and he's playing gangster. You know, he's an FBI agent. He's, he picked a side. You can't have. There was, there was just there was very biased digs in the book at him. Like you're like that. You think so? That slimeball Connolly. <laughs> he's a pretty bad guy, man. You know, I mean, I, I frankly, he's as bad as Whitey to me. Can he's I ask you? Not worse in some ways. So there are moments in the book in the audiobook specifically, where you have these, like, supposed quotes that Whitey said. How did you choose those? Like, that shit was so funny to me. I don't forget which scene it was, but it was like, and then Bulger said, you shouldn't bring a knife to a gunfight, kid. Oh, yeah. There's yeah, no yeah. way he said that. There's no oh, way. That, yes, that's true. That's, that's- How do you have evidence that he said that? What's that? How do you have evidence the, that he the, said the, that? The interviews that we did for, for the book. I mean, we... You know, we didn't just make those up. People told us that that's what he said, and they were there, you know. So 
Um, Casey got that. I'll have to check on that and get back to you. But I think it's in. I think it's actually cited in the book where that came from. Well, there's a, a hilarious moment where he was. Uh, he told the kid in Grand Isle, "You've you've got to drink your OJ. You've got to stay healthy." <laughs> well, yeah. Well, we uh, you know, that family talked to us extensively. You know, we did. You know, they told us a lot of stuff. This, you know, the whole puppy story I just told that all came right from the family. You know. The well, it's also funny because that's something my dad would say. OJ is actually <laughs> why is so unhealthy, and it's it's, that was, it's all sugar. It's literally a sugar blaster to your brain. It's terrible for you. Yeah. Um. Okay. Yeah. One one interesting thread about Whitey in the book, which I thought was so weird, was how frequently his discipline was referred to. And Connolly talked about it in his interview too, like him being super disciplined. And it was just, it was really weird to me to think of someone who like ruthlessly kills people as disciplined. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the best organized crime bosses are very disciplined. You know, they have their rules and they stick to them. You know, that's how they keep order in their organization. And, you know, Bulger was disciplined in his own life. You know, he had fit, a, right? What's that? He was wicked fit, right? Yeah, he did push-ups all the time. And, you know, he was, he, if you look at the old pictures in the, in the hard copy of the book, um, you know, he was, he was pretty jacked. You know, there's pictures of like wearing tight t-shirts, like looks like a mobster, you know, the surveillance photos, but he was pretty jacked, you know. And, um, you know, and he just, you know, he had his routines and, and he stuck to them. And that's not uncommon for like organized crime people. What about you, Davey Buckets? You've been hitting the, the quarantine workouts? <laughs> <laughs> Trying, man, a little bit, not too much. Well, with that flow, man, you got to get yourself like a Harley Davidson in a leather jacket and ride down 93. <laughs> it's my hockey hair, dude. <laughs> I love the flow, man. Um, hey, Lexi. So listen, Lexi is a student at BU. Yep. Kick-ass producer for us. And I want to make sure I connect you with her afterwards because she's going to like run a non-biased media company one day. So I got to make sure I do you that. But, but Lexi, you want to hit Dave with a question? Hey, Dave. So that's what I'm talking about. You know, that's exactly what I'm referencing is, you know, the New York Times looks pretty bad with that Tom Cotton um, op-ed, A, for running it and giving that bastard a platform, but, but B, um, it was just, uh, it, was, it was littered with errors, you know, and it was, you know, the New York Times has done a lot of weird stuff lately with, you know, headlines. Like they, you know, they'll, they'll put a, I can't remember the specific cases, but they had some incidents where they like put a, a bogus headline on something and then changed it when they were called out on it. So, you know, their, their, their credibility is not the best right now, but as I said before, um, within the New York times, you know, most of those reporters are some of the best reporters of the country. And, and I think you have to, I, I think you find individual reporters that you trust and you follow their work wherever they go. Like my friend, Wesley Lowry worked for the Boston globe um, award-winning reporter, and, and he went to the Times, and uh, I'm sorry, no, he went to the po Washington Post and won a Pulitzer for the stuff 
out in Ferguson, you know, the, the riots out there. So like I I'll read Wesley wherever he is. Lexi, that was a great question. Uh, I think it was a great question because I didn't understand it and it sounded super intelligent. Uh, I don't, and I got no clue who Tom Cotton is, but I'm glad we got smart people on the team. Uh, real, real quick segue. So in the trial, that dude Rakes was going to go stand trial. Yeah. Got, got killed in Lincoln. Oh, he was going to be a witness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So funny story, a little ex shorty of mine, right? I grew up in Lincoln. Oh. And, and listen, a little, and obviously nothing happens in Lincoln. And so I had a little ex shorty. She knows who she is. If you're listening, what's up? She signed up to intern at the Lincoln Police Department. In her first day as a, just a tiny intern, that this shit happened. They found the Rakes body. And so I don't really get the tie-in with Rakes. So was it connected? Was it – did Whitey send someone or was it – you said someone he just had cyanide in his Duncan's cup and it killed him. Yeah, so – Stephen Riggs was a victim of Whitey Bulger. Whitey extorted him and actually swindled him out of his liquor store in Southie. Whitey basically stole the guy's liquor store. Is that and Rotary so, Liquors right there? Yeah, Rotary Liquors right there at the, at the Rotary in Southie. So uh, Riggs was going to be a witness in the trial. And, um, uh, you know, in the middle of the trial, he turns up dead in Lincoln, as you just described, you know. And uh, obviously everyone went kind of nuts and thought Whitey Bulger was killing witnesses. But uh, the police came out pretty quickly and, and said, uh, you know, they arrested the guy that did it. It was some business associate completely unrelated to Whitey. It was, Rakes was involved in some business deal with this guy that went bad. So the guy poisoned his coffee and killed him. But uh, it was just another one of those, like, again, weird, you know, stranger than fiction sort of moments, you know, in the middle of this trial, and this trial is all about a guy that's intimidating witnesses, extorting people, corrupting law enforcement, and a, a witness turns up dead. It was wild. It was wild when it happened. Sorry, someone just FaceTimed me. That was unprofessional. Do you need to take it? <laughs> I know. I, I was choosing a time. I was like, Dave or this other guy. I don't know. What should I do? Um, so one final question, or I got two final questions. Sure. There were, based on all the positive interactions that Whitey had over the course of the, the book, the people he was good to, was there a common, and this is Lexi, you helped me with this question, but was there a common thread between them? Were they low intelligence? Like, was he, because Red Shea in the podcast, they're like, yeah, like Whitey just knew how to use people really well. Conley yeah. says it too, like it's a user of people. I think Matarocco, whatever the, the FBI. Were they all like Yeah, them? no, I, I, I think that's true. I think that he identified people in his life that he could corrupt, and he was a master manipulator. You know, Catherine Gregg's one of them. He knew that she was madly in love with him and would do whatever he said. So he took her on the run with him because he needed someone like that that would obey his every command and take care of him and, and give him cover. So, you know, John Connolly, I think, falls into that category where John Connolly was – you know, just someone that Bulger targeted for corruption. You know, John Connolly looked up to Whitey and Billy Bulger. Um, you know, he grew up in the same neighborhood and just looked up to them both. And when, you know, when, when Whitey became, you know, the crime boss, Billy actually 
told John Connolly, hey, watch out for my brother, you know? And, and, you know, so I think Whitey knew at that point that John Connolly was someone that he could corrupt. So he was great at finding those people. What's the book you're dropping in December? So we, we wrote a book with um, the author, James Patterson. Oh, and- Davey. That's a glow up. That's a big deal. Let's go. Yeah, yeah no, it's a pretty big deal. It was exciting. It was a good time. It's uh, so uh, this year is the 40th anniversary of the murder of John Lennon. And uh, we wrote a true crime book about John Lennon's murder. It's, it's really about John Lennon's life and his murder. Wow. So, uh, and we wrote that with James Patterson. Yeah, that comes out in December. So the, the anniversary of John Lennon's death, the 40th anniversary is December 8th. The book comes out on December 7th. So it's Davey. pretty exciting. You're going up, man. Your career is booming. That's crazy. Well, it's, it's a fun, it was a fun one, man. And it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a big book for us. And you know, it'll, 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 it's going to be a pretty big book. And we are working on some TV stuff on that too. We're trying to get that uh, in the Whitey book. You know, we're, we're trying to get them both in the limited series. Well, dude, can you do the Aaron Hernandez story and make no, the film about that? Done with that, dude. No way. Why? I, it's just too dark, man. It's even too dark for me. <laughs> no, no, that's not possible. There's a reason <laughs> you know, I call you young Stephen King. You know, I was involved in that. I think you know. I mean, I was involved in that coverage at the Herald, and I was working on a project actually where I was. Uh, so, did you see the project that came out on um, on Reels where the kid Pure, the kid, went on camera, Aaron Hernandez's jailhouse boyfriend? I didn't. I saw the documentary on Netflix. Yeah, so there's another one that was on Reels, the Reels Network, and, and the Aaron's prison boyfriend tells all, tells, comes out and tells it all. So I was involved in that project, but I got out of it because I just didn't like the way it was going. And, you know, it's a long story for another podcast, but um, it, that came out. So I, after, after that experience, I'm, I'm done with the Aaron Hernandez story. It's just too messed up, man. It's going to be a kick-ass movie, though. I don't think, yeah, I don't, you think they're going to make a movie out of that? Absolutely. We'll see. I don't know, man. He was a really messed up dude, though. That was wild. I mean, if anyone's going to do the Boston story, it's you. There's so many Boston tie-ins in this book. It was crazy. I, I interviewed um, Odin Lloyd's, uh, um, was it his, I think it was his brother or his cousin, Odin Lloyd's cousin. And he was on that football team with him. And he was a real, real nice kid. He lived in Dorchester kind of near me. And, you know, that's just a sad story, man. That kid, that kid did not deserve to be killed at all. Aaron Hernandez was a psychopath. That guy was a psych. He was really messed up. Messed up, dude. Yeah. They, they did a good job showing that in the Netflix documentary, too. Yeah. Well, I feel like once every five, six months, we got to have just – one podcast is just grim that talks about all the terrible things about humanity. So I'm, I'm glad you're the usher for that type of talk, man. You know, when I, when I was at the Herald, uh, once my nickname in the newsroom became the grim reaper. Cause I, <laughs> cause I covered, I had one, one week I covered 17 funerals in one week. Why are you smiling? Was- like, why are you smiling? <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, and a lot of them were kids, man. It was kids that got killed in a fire and it was just an awful, it was an awful week. And I, I don't, I don't know, man, this is just, I'm, everyone has the thing they're good at. I, I'm, I'm good at covering crime. You know, it's, well, I'm good say- at telling stories. I, I don't consider myself just a crime reporter, but I do gravitate towards crime covering it. And I also, 
I try to pick stories that have some sort of redemptive quality. Like for example, in this book, the redemptive quality here, I think is that he got caught, you know, and, and I'm trying to expose even Whitey Bulger deserves fairness from the justice system. And he didn't get that from the prison system. He got put in harm's way and murdered. And, and you know, people in the prison system who made that decision to put him in that prison, they need to be held accountable. As the, as the narrator would say, that sick bastard would never see another day. Who, who was that guy? That guy killed it. <laughs> yeah, no, the, 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 um, it's funny because we get to listen to those. Like, we, we'll get a bunch of clips of different guys and we help pick them. So we, we both picked that guy. I can't, I can't think of his name right now, but... Um, you a Boston guy? Like, you know, he's, a, he's like an actor, like a voiceover guy. I'm not even sure, but, but we, we had to help him with some of the pronunciations of the names and all that stuff. It's pretty, pretty crazy. It's a fun process. It was a long, it probably took a really long time for him. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean reading the whole book and, and getting all the names right, you know, he probably had to do a lot of takes. Because some of those names, you know, Monterano and Freddie Gius, you know, those are weird names to say. There was one that sounded like Flemmy, but it wasn't Paul Palagiro. Oh, no. Uh, Frank Salemi. 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 Yeah. Salemi's life is a book, too. That guy's got a wild story. I mean, Freddie Gius's life could be a movie. Well, Weeks has a book, right? Weeks wrote a book, yep. Um, and there was some shitty movie about his book. It was shitty, though. Come on, let's be positive. I'm positive, Kevin. Dude, are you kidding me? All right. Well, well, hey, listen. I had a blast, man. I hope you had fun. This is great. I got to listen to the Red Shea one. I know you got to get Red Shea a book. Yeah, I will. Did, you should. Did he say? Did he? He hasn't read it. Did you ask him? He hasn't read it. I said you were coming up. We we're gonna run one. I'll definitely send him a book. His, book, his book was pretty good. His Red, Red's book was one of the better Whitey books that you know. And there's a lot of people that that think he, you know, made some stuff up or embellished and stuff. I don't know the truth of what what really happened. He didn't, but I read that book and I thought it was I thought it was well done. Well, he also you know, did it. He, the, woman, the, the woman he wrote it with is a friend of mine, Phyllis Karras. She's actually a, she used to be a professor at BU. Well, he did a young adult novel too called Kid from Southie, which I again in my infant brain enjoyed i didn't read that one i'll have to check that out well, i didn't read it either audio 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 well, hey, whatever however you're consuming man well hey Golden listen beer. yes sir wait we're not done we got two bits to end the show so uh, listen this is this is perfectly opportune for you so we have a bit now called gdp sales mode Okay. And I'm going to give you the floor for 40 seconds. I'm going to put my hand up when you got 10 left. You can say whatever you want in the 40 seconds. We're going to cut it up as a clip. It's called sales mode because usually you're selling something. But we know like moral integrity. Dave, you might have something else to toss in there. I don't know. But I'm going to give you 40 seconds. I'm going to count down from I don't five. Know what I don't even know what to say. I don't know what you're talking about here. Okay. You want me to, you want me to just dumb it down a little bit? Yeah, you get forty seconds to, to pitch. pitch. My book? You could pitch your book or anything. Okay. Got it. And I'm gonna count down from five, and then when there's ten seconds left, I'm gonna put my hand up. Got but it. you're you're gonna be cut off at forty. All right. Five, four, three, two, one. Sales mode. 
Hey, I'm Dave Wedge. I'm an author here in Boston, and uh, I have a new book out called uh, Hunting Whitey. Pick it up on Amazon. Uh, you can hit me up on Facebook or uh, Instagram, Twitter, and all those things. Dave Wedge, not David, Dave. Um, we got a bunch of other books that we've written. We wrote Boston Strong that was uh, turned into the movie Patriot's Day. Um, and we wrote the book about Pete Frady's life story, and we're working on trying to get that turned into a movie. We have some news coming up on that soon. But with everything going on in the world right now, I want you all to find news that you can trust. Uh, your service got cut out at the end. I lost you at news you can trust. Just finish it off. All right. You know, with everything going on right now in the world, I'd, I'd ask you all to you know, find news out there that you can trust and do something to help your community. There's Dave, the philanthropist. That's it, man. Hey, thank you so much for doing this. This is how we start and end the show. I hope you remember from when we ran it at the old studio. Hi, your name, and this is my platinum hour because it's your second. Yep. Hi, your name, and that was my platinum hour. Ready? I'm ready, baby. Hi, I'm Dave Wedge, and that was my platinum hour. What, what else? You blew it, Dave. You blew it. <laughs> you blew it, man. What a you got to say two things. Hi, I'm Dave Wedge, and this is my platinum hour. Then directly after. Oh, okay. No yeah. break. Hi, I'm Dave Wedge, and that, that was. was Got it. Is that was. And I'll give it a little preface. Listen, man, for everyone out there, I barely know how to read. But I read Dave's book. Just kidding. I did the audio book, but I'd bump it. All right, Dave, take us away, dude. Hi, I'm Dave Wedge, and this is my platinum hour. Hi, I'm Dave Wedge, and that was my platinum hour. Bang. Well executed. And listen, via email, I'm gonna connect you with slugs and Lexi and B. If you, yep. can, if you can kick him any journalistic game, would love that. Got and it. also, I want to get your girlfriend's, excuse me, your daughter's boyfriend hooked up with some GDP stuff. Okay, cool. Awesome. And I'm going to get you hooked up with a shirt. Just, shoot, just shoot me your address, sizes, favorite colors, and I got you. Oh, that's nice, man. Thank you. His Thank name's you. Austin. He follows you. He's a good dude. Good. Hey. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Did you have fun? It's great, dude. I love your show, man. You do a good job.